the United States of America. A long-time presence in Southeast Asia, but the regional environment has changed. Political realities, climate change, digital issues, China's growing influence. Amid these myriad challenges, how will the U.S. fare? How will Southeast Asian governments respond? Join us for Engaging the Eagle, exploring U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia, a podcast series by the U.S. program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. Let's begin, shall we? Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Episode 3 of Engaging the Eagle, exploring U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia. I'm Kevin an Associate Research Fellow with the U.S. Program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, or RSIS. Hi, uh, I am Jun from the, the Rajaratnam School. Together with Kevin, we are seeing this episode of the podcast. Yes, thank you, Jun. We will be your hosts for this episode, Awaiting a Thor, U.S.-Vietnam Ties in 2023. Vietnam has been increasingly viewed as a key partner for the U.S. due to its strategic location, and a common interest in opposing Chinese maritime aggression. Yet, the relationship between Washington and Hanoi has ostensibly cooled over the past year, with no major visits by US leaders to Vietnam in 2022. There have been numerous suggested reasons for this relative freeze in ties with the US, ranging from frictions over the Russian invasion of Ukraine, to the ouster of former President Yun Xian Fuk, and Hanoi's desire to reaffirm economic ties with Beijing. Nonetheless, there are still opportunities for Washington to deepen its relationship with Hanoi, especially in areas such as security and trade. Some observers have also called for the pair to elevate their relationship to a comprehensive partnership, which would signal their mutual interest in a more sustainable path of cooperation. Joining us to discuss this important topic is Ms. Huang Di Ha, Senior Fellow and Coordinator of the Regional Strategic and Political Studies Program at the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies or ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute. She previously worked at the ASEAN Department of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Vietnam and at the ASEAN Secretariat. Ms. Huang, thank you for joining us today. Now, one of our practices on this show is to assign lesser grades to the bilateral relationship between the US and the Southeast Asian country in question as a way to frame the conversation. Overall, what lesser grade would you assign to the US-Vietnam relationship in 2022? Why do you think so? and what were the most notable developments and missed opportunities? Thanks, Kevin. Thank you for having me in the show. Uh, To answer your first question, I think we would need a benchmark to do the grading. If we put A, for example, for the high water mark of 2021, when Vietnam appeared to be a high priority of the Biden administration's Southeast Asia policy, then perhaps I would assign a C to the performance of U.S.-Vietnam relations in 2022. It was, as you mentioned in the introduction to the program, a relatively quiet year in U.S.-Vietnam relations with almost no high-level bilateral exchange. On the contrary, in 2021, in the very early months of the Biden administration, Hanoi received U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and the U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris which was a historic one because it was the first vice presidential visit of the U.S. after the normalization of bilateral ties in 1995. 
you asked about the missed opportunities in 2022, and I think there were quite a few of them. For example, Vietnamese Prime Minister Phạm Minh Ching attended the ASEAN-US Special Summit in D.C. in May 2022, but he had no bilateral meeting with President Biden. To be fair, Biden did not meet any Southeast Asian leader bilaterally during the summit due to his packed schedule, so it was quite understandable. But most unfortunate was the cancellation of a visit by Secretary of State Antony Blinken in July, probably because Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov would also visit Hanoi around the same time. Also, the U.S. had hoped to be able to sustain the pattern of its aircraft carrier doing port visits in Vietnam every two years. It did so in 2018 and 2020, but it was cancelled for unknown reasons in 2022. And a highly anticipated phone call between President Biden and Vietnam Communist Party Secretary General Nguyen Phu Trọng did not take place either in 2022, reportedly due to the timing issue. But I think Great Sea is not mainly because of the lack of high-level exchanges. It is just a symptom of more underlying problems. In 2021, Kurt Campbell, the coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs of the Biden administration, described Vietnam as a critical swing state in the Indo-Pacific. And he urged both countries' leaders to be more forthcoming in sharing true strategic purpose I think there was a palpable enthusiasm in the air from the American side about the strategic like-mindedness between Vietnam and the U.S. then vis-à-vis China. But that enthusiasm has quite receded in 2022 for reasons that we may discuss in depth later in the show. Thank you very much, Ms. Huang. Wow, a C-grade is a considerable drop from a high of 2021. Could you help us to understand more about the underlying issues about why this relative freeze in ties came about? The title of the show is like awaiting a thaw, right? But I would not characterize the current status of Vietnam-US relations as a freeze. It is still too early to presume any fundamental downturn in Vietnam-US relations at this juncture because both sides still need each other economically and strategically. Short of high-level exchanges, other dimensions of the relationship are still very much alive and well, and business is as usual in pushing bilateral cooperation ahead in economic and functional areas. For example, Vietnam's trade with the U.S. reached a record high in 2022 at almost 124 billion U.S. dollars. And last year, Vietnam replaced the United Kingdom as the U.S. seventh largest trading partner. And that is a very remarkable achievement. Vietnam is also the fifth largest source of foreign students to the U.S. in 2022, and the U.S. is only behind Japan in attracting Vietnamese students. So as the Vietnamese society becomes more open and forward-looking, then I think they will provide a strong and resilient reservoir of goodwill towards the U.S. and would catalyze further developments in bilateral ties. But as we have discussed just now, it is also true that 2022 was the year of frustrations and reflections on both sides at the strategic level. And I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing war do play a big part in the cooling of the relations. 
Vietnam, as all of us may have already known, has arduously but consistently avoided condemning Russia's aggression. Not only at the voting of the relevant United Nations General Assembly resolutions, but also in its domestic propaganda. For example, Vietnamese media could cover the perspectives and statements from different stakeholders in the war, be it Russia, Ukraine, or European countries. But they must refrain from making value judgments that put Russia in a bad light. I could imagine that this must have greatly disappointed the U.S. and European countries. But on the other hand, American pressure must have also frustrated the Vietnamese leadership and security establishment as well. And this could solidify the Vietnamese leadership's resolve that they must exhibit independence and strategic autonomy in their foreign policy. Thanks so much. Uh, if I may just push a bit on Vietnamese and U.S. economic ties, right? Since the passage of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act by the U.S. legislature in mid-2022, Vietnamese products have been under sharper scrutiny right, by the U.S. Commerce Department with regard to containing products manufactured in Xinjiang. Well, we wonder whether or not the implementation of this act would further affect the bilateral economic relationship between Vietnam and the U.S.? Thanks, June, for the question. I think not only Vietnamese textiles, but many Vietnamese exports to the U.S. are subject to American laws and regulations, which are driven by all sorts of motivation, protectionism, yes, but also political, environmental standards, and even geopolitical, as in the case of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And as I mentioned earlier, Vietnam has become one of the top trading partners of the U.S. And as Vietnam exports much more now to the U.S., then its products will be under increasing scrutiny. It is interesting to note that Vietnam is still considered a non-market economy in the U.S. anti-dumping law, which subjects its products to anti-dumping and anti-subsidy lawsuits in the U.S., for example, in 2022 alone, the U.S. Department of Commerce initiated more than 50 cases that require investigations to determine safeguard measures against Vietnamese products. And these include like steel, wood, furniture, textiles, honey, and all sorts of stuff. And we all know that interdependence engenders vulnerability, be it with the US or China or any other external partners. And this is the fact that the Vietnamese businesses must adjust to and comply with. Vietnamese government agencies and many business associations have actively promoted greater understanding of American law and regulations for Vietnamese firms. They have also made appeals to the U.S. to reconsider some hefty anti-dumping tariffs on Vietnamese products and have made some success. So I think these problems are essentially economic in nature, but building political trust and mutual understanding of each other's systems and appreciating the strategic value of the broader U.S.-Vietnam relationship, they may have in the search for mutually beneficial solutions to these problems. Thank you so much for more detailed explanation about this. 
Moving on to another aspect you mentioned earlier, right? The Russian question and how it affects US-Vietnamese ties. And I'm sure you've heard rumors and suggestions that Hanoi and Washington should elevate their relationship from the current comprehensive partnership to a strategic partnership, right? What mm-hmm. then do you think are the prospects of this happening, especially in light of the Russian question? Thank you. Yes, it is a very pertinent question because there is a lot of wondering about whether both countries could elevate the relationship to a strategic partnership this year, given the fact that this year is the 10th anniversary of their comprehensive strategic partnership. I think there are many ways to look at it. On the one hand, the nomenclature of the partnership does not necessarily dictate or correlate to the breadth and depth of the relationship. For example, Vietnam currently has strategic comprehensive partnership with four countries, China, Russia, India, and South Korea. The case with China is very obvious because of political and strategic necessity, despite the entrenched mutual distrust between the two countries. The case with South Korea is because of mutual trust and robust economic cooperation. With Russia, it is more about traditional friendship and trust and Vietnam's dependence on Russian arms. The case of India is even more intriguing because India does not figure as a significant economic and security partner for Vietnam. So there is indeed some truth in the usual Vietnamese narrative that its partnership with the U.S. is already strategic in nature and in substance. But on the other hand, as you may already know, Vietnam has been and is still quite reluctant, still quite non-committal actually to establishing a strategic partnership with the U.S., And this does reveal some structural limitations in Vietnam-U.S. relations from my understanding. First of all, I think it may have something to do with Hanoi's sensitivity towards China. And the most intense the U.S.-China rivalry becomes, then probably the more prudent and risk-averse Vietnam would be in walking the line between Beijing and Washington. Second, and perhaps more importantly, it is the lack of mutual trust between Hanoi and Washington, despite their growing strategic convergence. Within the VCP, especially its security and propaganda apparatus, they are still quite wary of veering too close to the U.S. and still hold reservations about a strategic partnership with the U.S. You mentioned that there may be a Vietnam's close relations with Russia could be a factor, and I think it could be right. There are concerns that a strategic partnership with the U.S. might entail increased American pressure on or intervention in Vietnam's strategic autonomy, especially uh, with regard to uh, Vietnam's uh, purchase of Russian arms or Vietnam's positions on uh, the war in Ukraine. Thank you very much, Ruiz Huang. That's quite a lot to think about. If I might pivot a little bit, actually, I'd like to ask a question about the defense cooperation agenda which is quite a key pillar in U.S.-Vietnam relations. Due to the legacy of the war, there's a spotlight on issues like addressing war legacies and moving towards reconciliation. As seen during the recent trip by U.S. aid administrator Samantha Power to Vietnam earlier this month, what role do these efforts to address war legacies play in the overall bilateral relationship? I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. 
I'm glad that you raised this question because addressing the legacies of the Vietnam War is still a very important issue and a high priority in Vietnam-U.S. relations, at least from the Vietnamese point of view. These legacies include, for example, the removal of explosive ordnance, dioxin treatment and mitigation of Agent Orange's health and environmental impacts, assistance to the survivors, especially people with disability, and mutual assistance in the search for the remains of fallen American and Vietnamese soldiers in the war. And this process is remarkable in the sense that it involves not only the government agencies, but also various non-governmental organizations, including veteran associations from both sides. And while a lot remains to be done, I think Vietnam-U.S. cooperation in addressing war legacies has achieved some tangible results. You mentioned the visit by Samantha Power, but also the cleanup of some Vietnamese big airports from dioxin contamination and the increasing attention by the U.S. to helping the Vietnamese survivors or victims of Agent Orange. And this has helped to rebuild trust not only among the two governments, but more pertinently at the grassroots level. There are many public opinion surveys that show that the U.S. is particularly popular among the young and the educated Vietnamese people. But anti-U.S. sentiments and anti-U.S. narratives still exist in Vietnam, especially among the older generations and many veterans, Vietnamese veterans from the war. So I think successful handling of the war legacies would go a long way in building a strong foundation for the relationship going forward. What then would you say is Hanoi's attitude towards the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy? Especially, uh, we've heard a lot about AUKUS in the news yesterday as well as today with details of a nuclear submarine deal. Do you have anything to highlight with regard to Vietnam's view about this new deal? Thanks. I am not in the mind of the Vietnamese leaders. So to be honest, I really don't know for sure. But I read the Vietnam summit-level joint statements with a few individual quad countries during recent years, and it appears that Vietnam has tactfully embraced the Indo-Pacific construct in both declaratory and also substantive ways. These joint statements adopt the term Indo-Pacific, whatever it may mean, and the rules-based order discourse as well as Indo-Pacific areas of cooperation such as maritime security, supply chain resilience, and quality infrastructure. For example, the 2019 statement with Australia declares that the two countries are close partners and friends in the Indo-Pacific. The 2020 joint statement with India says that Vietnam-India Enhanced Defense and Security Partnership is an important factor of stability in the Indo-Pacific region. Or in the 2021 statement with Japan, both sides emphasize the importance of free and open order based on the rule of law where international law, including the Charter of the United Nations, the independence of nations and sovereignty are respected and in achieving stability, cooperation, and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific region and the world. So it is obvious that Vietnam is quite attractive and supportive of the Indo-Pacific's value proposition of openness and freedom. Although Hanoi's embrace of freedom is mainly confined to the state level, 
which emphasizes national sovereignty and country's freedom to choose their own path and partners. And Vietnam's reference to the Indo-Pacific uh, therefore consistently evokes the principles of independence and sovereignty, respect for legitimate rights and interests of all nations, and upholding international law and the rules-based order. So I would think that compared to many other Southeast Asian countries, Vietnam adopts quite a forward-leaning approach towards the Indo-Pacific. And I would argue that this forward leaning approach is driven by Vietnam's anxiety about China's maritime ambitions in the region. And its response strategy involves both engagement and deterrence against China. For the engagement part, ASEAN's own script through the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific does provide a middle ground for Vietnam to maneuver between China's antipathy towards the Indo-Pacific and the U.S., and its allies and partners in the Pacific strategies. For the deterrence parts, uh, you asked about the Quad and AUKUS, and I used the elite opinion polls, especially the annual State of Southeast Asia survey conducted by our ISIS Yushov Ishak Institute to discern that Vietnam's foreign policy establishment consistently have favorable views towards the Indo-Pacific security minilaterals, such as the Quad and AUKUS. For example, around 65% of the Vietnamese respondents thought that the Quad would have positive or very positive impact on Southeast Asian security. The same amount, 65 or 64% agreed that strengthening the Quad is positive and reassuring for Southeast Asia. And by strengthening of the Quad, I mean that implies the expansion of the Quad agenda, not only from security issues, but also more positive agenda with regard to like climate change, supply chain, or infrastructure development. And also the same amount of realist realism about the utility of AUKUS is also registered, actually, because the Vietnamese value the importance of AUKUS in the sense that it can serve as a counterbalance to China's power in the Asia-Pacific. And Vietnam's official position on American freedom of navigation in the South China Sea also suggests a tacit welcome of American military presence and security engagement in the region to counterbalance China's growing maritime ambitions. I see. Thanks so much for that. And I must also say uh, on record for this podcast that I really enjoyed your related article in Contemporary Southeast Asia last year on understanding the institutional challenge of Indo-Pacific minilaterals to ASEAN. Thanks, June. Thank you for your kind words. So, Ms. Huang, if I might change the topic again just a little bit, uh, one area that has been on everyone's mind, I think, since earlier this year has to be the change of leadership in Vietnam after President Nguyen Chien Phu had to step down. Observers have offered different views on how this change in leadership would affect Vietnam's relationships between Beijing and Washington. Some saw minimal changes. Others said that the change signals a move in a more ideological and less pro-Western direction. How do you think the change in leadership will affect Hanoi's ties with Washington, if at all? I don't think we should read too much into the recent change of leadership in Vietnam in the sense that what it might mean for Vietnam's foreign policy. All big decisions on domestic and foreign policy of Vietnam are made by the Vietnamese Communist Party's Politburo, 
in the tradition of collective leadership. And the strategic directions of Vietnam's foreign policy have been set at the 13-party Congress in 2021. And the Congress reaffirmed the cause that Vietnam has faithfully undertaken since the opening up and reform in the late 1980s, namely multi-directional diversification of external relations, regional and international economic integration, and especially the combination of cooperation and struggle in any relationship, be it with China or with the U.S. You talk about the change of some top leaders, former President Nguyen Xuân Phúc, right? And also two other deputy prime ministers, Phạm Bình Minh and Vũ Đức Đàm. And especially Phạm Bình Minh was a long-time foreign minister. And there was some concern that this these removals may affect Vietnam's relations with the U.S. and other Western countries. But I don't really think so because their removals were because of reasons that had nothing to do with their foreign policy orientations. And it is true that these leaders, uh, some of them, uh, Phạm Bình Minh and Vũ Đức Đàm, are Western educated. They all have technocratic experiences and have the track record of being positively disposed towards strengthening relations with Western countries. But I would interpret it in this way. This would mean that their replacements would have a steep learning curve ahead. And given that they are still very young leaders, there is still room for adjustment and the learning curve, as I mentioned. And the fact that these new leaders do not share the same background does not necessarily mean that they are deterministically pro-Chinese or anti-American or anti-Western. Having said that, I think although the personnel change at the top leadership does not change the course of Vietnam's foreign policy, it has and may continue to bring some disruptions and uncertainties to Vietnam's foreign relations, especially with the U.S., as you mentioned. For example, there is apparently good chemistry, a sense of comradeships and ideological affinity between the Vietnamese Communist Party Secretary General Chao and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping. Recent political developments in Vietnam, for example, the greater control of the party over the state, or the re-election of Chao for a non-breaking third term, or his growing dominance as a core leader. They now use the word core leader as well. And this may chip away at the Vietnamese Communist Party's collective leadership tradition, as well as Trump's anti-corruption campaign to clean up the system and his focus on party building or cadre rectification. All of these developments bear a lot of resemblance to China's politics under the leadership of Xi Jinping. But again, it does not necessarily mean that Trump is pro-China or that Vietnam will deviate from its hedging strategy between the US and China. But it may cause Trump to be more careful in bringing the warming relationship with Washington forward because it has to be more sensitive towards China. It is unlikely that Vietnam will head towards China instead of the U.S. because many people in Vietnam, in the Vietnamese society, are favorable towards America and the Vietnamese economy relies a great deal on the U.S. market as the largest export market for Vietnam's 
Vietnamese products. My bigger concern is that due to the anti-corruption campaign, the country is currently at a juncture of great political churn. And this has led to prevalent inertia and indecision in economic governance. And such indecision and inertia may as well extend to foreign policy making at a time when strategic foresight and bold decisions are very much needed. I see, I see. Thank you very much. So essentially, you're saying that the broad direction of the relationship is probably going to remain intact. It's just at the level of, say, leadership and leadership dynamics, there might be certain fluctuations, shall we say. Yes. With these issues in mind, then, I'd like to ask a final question. What would you say is the general outlook for US-Vietnam ties in 2023? Are there any significant events that we should look out for? And what pressure points could there be in the relationship as well? Many of us, including myself, have been quite carried away by the fast pace of advancement of U.S.-Vietnam relations during recent years. And we tend to forget that the rapprochement between the two countries had in fact transpired quite slowly and gradually in the first two decades after the normalization of bilateral ties in 1995. Only in the last decade has the relationship progressed very substantively and quickly, in large part due to the U.S.-China strategic competition. So I think the slowdown in 2022 was somewhat useful in the sense that it entailed some necessary reflections on both the U.S. and Vietnam regarding the extent of their strategic convergence and the structural limitations in the relationship so as to have more realistic expectations about each other. And what do I mean by structural limitations? As you mentioned, the pressure points, right? I think the biggest stumbling block remains the ideological differences and the lack of full-fledged mutual political trust between the top leadership, especially on the part of Vietnam. Although the Biden administration foreign policy towards Southeast Asia and towards Vietnam especially has been driven more by pragmatism and ideology, but the body politic of the U.S. is very complex with different stakeholders advocating competing agendas and Biden's democracy versus autocracy rhetoric, which was ratcheted up after Russia's war in Ukraine, has not really helped uh, build trust with Hanoi. But having said that, I am quite hopeful in the sense that both countries still very much need each other. Of course, it takes time and steady efforts to build trust and deepen the interdependency between the two countries. But there are a lot of functional cooperation areas where they can increase the collaboration for tangible and impactful results, including in the security domain. I think Vietnam-US cooperation has been more substantive and impactful when they focus on practical needs in both traditional and non-traditional issues and when they take place without the drum beating or the grandstanding of a great power competition. As for this year, as I mentioned earlier, 2023 is the 10th anniversary of Vietnam-US Comprehensive Partnership, and it should be an auspicious occasion to make it a strategic partnership. At least that is the wish of many people. 
And I understand that both Washington and Hanoi are working hard to have bilateral high-level visits in the near future, perhaps hopefully a visit by Secretary General Nguyen Phu Trang, if his health allows, or by the new President Võ Văn Thường to the U.S. this year, or a visit by President Biden to Vietnam, if not this year, then next year. The new Vietnamese president will also attend the APEC summit hosted by the U.S. in San Francisco in November. And that would be a good opportunity for him to get international exposure beyond his traditional ambit of party external engagement, which is much more limited than the current post of president. We should not be overexcited because domestic politics still casts a shadow on Vietnam's foreign policy. But we have good reasons to be hopeful that 2023 can inject a new momentum to the relationship. I see. Thank you very much, Ms. Huang. I suppose instead of our original title, which was Awaiting a Thaw, maybe Year of Reflection would have been a better title for this episode then. And with that, I would like to thank our distinguished guest for sharing her insights with us. Ms. Huang, thank you for speaking with us today. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. We hope to host you again for exciting discussions about US foreign policy in the region. Until next time, stay safe and goodbye. Thank you.